You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, amen. The Lord is showering us with gifts this morning from being able to sing such rich songs of our faith and to be encouraged in our hearts to celebrating shortly from now the Lord's Supper together, which we do on the last Sunday of every month as well. We get to open the Word of God and to have our souls nourished in yet another way. So let me invite you to turn with me to our text for this morning, which is Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. As we continue forward, just taking it piece by piece through the book of Revelation this year, we're looking for rich truth that will help us to exalt our King. And we find that again here in this text this morning. I'm grateful that we can be together. In December of 2021, on the island of Oahu in Hawaii, a military mother became terribly, terribly ill. She thought that maybe she had picked up some kind of food poisoning or something else. She had never felt so sick, but as it just kept going on and on, it became difficult to figure out what it was until suddenly it was realized that it wasn't food poisoning at all, but rather the Navy had reported after that that 14,000 gallons of a fuel water mixture had spilled from an ongoing leak in a drain at the Red Hill Field Storage Facility in Pearl Harbor. This story, this image, really, really captures my attention because it's another one of those pictures in everyday life that remind us of what sometimes our spiritual life is like. And, and in this way, perhaps what it's always like. Now, we know that oil and water do not mix. And while that's true, they can coexist. This story of this physical illness shows that very fact, that it, it could exist. In fact, this mother and many other families at, in this place at this time, they had no way of knowing that their water had been contaminated. When they turned it on, they said there wasn't even any real smell to it, but you quickly learned something was wrong as you took it in. Well, in a similar way, uh, in our lives, our hearts, even though Christ is there for those of us who know him and belong to him, yet in his wisdom, there is still this thing that we call remaining sin. There is still this, this coexistence of two things that, that really don't mix. And a big part of the Christian life, as I have found, and I'm sure you've found, is learning biblically what to do about that. Because this is not a problem that, that God says he's going to take away in this life. It'll only be taken away in the life to come. And so for now, we entrust ourselves to his wisdom and his grace and his care and to his word so that we can know what to do living this kind of spiritual life. One in which we know Christ, we have Christ, but we also know sin. We have sin. This is a hard reality for all of us because because we live in a world that's fallen. We live in a world that's broken. We live in a world of, of untruth. In many ways, we might even say that we live in a world of, of deception or deceit because the world system doesn't listen to the word of God. The world system doesn't know anything about the, the promises of God or his purposes in the world and certainly doesn't promote those. So here we are in this world really swimming upstream really living against the grain of the world. On top of that, we know from the Bible that one reason the world is the way it is is because it's ruled by our adversary, who is the devil, the accuser of the brethren, the tempter, the, the king of sowing untruth. 
But then we also know from the word of God that even though we live in that kind of a world and even though there is a devil in this world, that we have an even greater problem. It's not one that's outside of us. It's actually one that's inside of us. And it's our own flesh, that our own flesh has been bent by sin. Even though we know Christ, it remains bent by sin toward untruth. Well, what are we going to do about this? How do we live in this world? That's why God has given us his word. And so today, this morning, we want to consider how we can be Christians who hold true in a deceptive world, in a world that is ruled by the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself, yet is under God's control, and how we can hold true even as people who have remaining sin. We want to do that this morning by considering three truths that we need to embrace as a church and as Christians to help us in this lifelong fight with remaining sin in a fallen world and with such, such a serious and deadly enemy. How do we hold true in such a world? Well, here's the first truth that I want you to see from our text this morning, and it is recognizing similar to that story from Hawaii, that it's true, good character can coexist with bad beliefs. Good character can coexist with bad beliefs. The way that we've been going about looking at the book of Revelation, especially in chapter 2, as uh, various churches are being addressed by the Lord, we have started by noticing the way that Jesus is referenced or described to each of these churches. It sets the tone and directs our hearts to understand what is being said and why, and the God to whom we must look for help in the midst of similar situations that we find ourselves in today. Notice in verse 18, it begins in that common way, and to the angel, or another way might be to the pastor or elders of the church in Thyatira, write, the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze, says this. Notice that description of Christ. First, referring to him as the Son of God. Now, while that's very familiar to us because we know Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons in the Godhead, that Jesus is the second person, the Son of God, that's very familiar. This language seems to, of course, refer to him as the Son of God, but there's something else going on because as we look at the context going forward, we see something else here as though it's a a reference to some of what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God, and in, in particular, a reference to a divine king. You see, Son of God is another way of talking about, about those who were viewed as divine kings in the world, who were appointed by the, the ultimate king. But here we find that Jesus is the Son of God. He is this divine king appointed by the ultimate king, God himself. And notice what it says about him. It says that his eyes are like a flame of fire. He has vision that is blazing with power. Not only that, he has feet like burnished bronze. As we've seen before, another reference to burnished bronze, which seems to, to capture the idea of, of being solid, being gloriously solid and stable and permanent. This is the one who is speaking to this church and delivering this message to the angel of the th church at Thyatira. 
Now, the message that's delivered to this church is similar to the one that we read about to Ephesus because it begins, you'll notice in verse 19, with a a sincere recounting of maybe what we would call tributes or accolades of these believers in this church at this time. These are real compliments. It's a real recognition and accounting of the good things that are going on in their lives. And listen to what it says. It talks about good deeds of love and faith in Christ. He says, I know your deeds of your love and faith, not just of the the things that you do exactly, but of your whole life. It's not so much contrasting words or or deeds with faith, but, but capturing the whole life. I know your whole life and your love and faith and service, these outward acts of faith and love, your perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. You're capturing a picture that's really a beautiful picture, a picture that that we all in our church as Christians aspire to. We want to be characterized like this. Oh, if if people in our communities or in our our schools or workplaces or, or anywhere else could look at us as a church and as believers and say these kinds of things, we should be so delighted that they would say, I look at your life, your whole life, it's full of love and, and faith. You're servants, you're persevering. In fact, you are living the Christian life in a way that it's intended because you're even growing. This is something that wasn't said earlier about Ephesus, but rather saying that your deeds now are even better. You're, you're getting better with, with age. You're growing and maturing. You're on the path of progressive sanctification. It's a beautiful picture. It's something to really rejoice over and something for us to shoot at with our lives. We want our lives to be like that. And yet, as it's been to all of the churches and will continue in this chapter, there is then this turn of the word but. You know, but is used throughout Scripture in some key ways in our faith because usually in the positive sense, we rejoice because we hear about our sin and then there's a but. And that but always turns our vision from being downcast at our feet in despair and shame because of our sin. And we say we should look up to Christ because but God, but God has forgiven us, but God is gracious to us, but God is caring for us, but God is faithful. It's a positive shift here in these letters and these messages. As we see to this church, the word but is actually a negative shift. It's a humbling shift. It's a sobering shift because now having heard of these wonderful compliments and accolades, which we, if they're true of us, we should hold on to them and treasure them and really value them and and let them work happiness in our hearts. There is still here a but. He says in verse 20, but I have this against you. And what he has against them is that they tolerate the woman Jezebel. You remember in Ephesus, This is not something that that church in Ephesus was doing. They did not tolerate this kind of teaching or untruth, but here, here we find something else going on. We find this really shocking and sinister and sneaky coexistence of something good and something bad, of oil and water, of good character and good life, but still the intermingling 
of bad beliefs. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so they commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. This certainly is a discouraging word in this case, but because it's a discouraging word about remaining sin. And the way that their remaining sin, as ours is, is prone to do in this case, was that they were not exactly on guard against some untruth that they had come to tolerate or minimize, or perhaps in some ways even to begin believing. It was tolerance, as it says here, for Jezebel, the false prophetess. This is a good reminder to us as a church that loves the gospel, and we're trying to understand more of what it means for the gospel to be an announcement of good news. We're reminded over and over in our church about the importance of the message of the good news. That's what what fills us with joy. That's what, what leads us out into our faith. It is ultimately the source of our sanctification and our growth. Our growth doesn't come down to us pulling up our bootstraps and doing more good deeds, but rather hearing hearing with faith the truth of the gospel, the announcement of good news of what Jesus has done for us, right? All of that. And this is a reminder again. What was the problem? What was so dangerous about Jezebel? It wasn't just this lifestyle. It actually was a certain message because she's a prophetess. She's a proclaimer. She's an announcer of a message, of a story, And that's the problem, is that this story had begun to intermingle with the true story, the true story of the gospel. Now, this is where some things in Revelation get, well, some things, lots of things, get confusing in the book of Revelation. There's one, is it talks about different people and things and in kind of unique ways. It's hard sometimes to to kind of get our hands around it. But here, it seems most logical that, that John is using Jezebel as a kind of symbolic way of talking about either someone at this time or a a teaching at this time that was invading the church. And that would be really familiar to us. We uh, We see that happen throughout Scripture. But referring to Jezebel, you may remember from the Old Testament, is a reference to King Ahab's wife who had led astray Israel from Elijah's leadership. And she was most known for for false worship of Baal, a false god, as well as false prophecy. And so as then in the Old Testament, here now in the New Testament, it's referenced again as this warning and this caution. And we want to be clear what it is. It's a caution about what we believe. It's a caution about what we do with our theology. Because you notice it says other things about her. What does she do? She teaches and leads astray. How does she lead astray? By teaching. And who does she teach? This is what's astounding. This is what's humbling to us. Because sometimes we feel like we're in such a great place in the Christian life and we got it all down and you know everybody else is sort of wrong and we figured it all out. But these blind spots are what get us. Because who does she teach and lead astray? My bondservants. Now, we could change that and we could say, well, what if it had said, my rookies, my scrubs? 
She leads away my scrubs. Those who are on the fringes, but that's not what this says. It's the language that even the Apostle Paul routinely uses about himself in his ultimate dedication to Christ. And so there's something humbling about this for us to watch our blind spots. We look back throughout even church history and we see all different kinds of things of the way that the people in the past, Christians in the past have lived or, or practiced really abominable things like, like slavery and others. And it just reminds us because these people we look up to in so many ways, they're blind spots. Well, here was one for them. She was teaching them and leading them astray so that it was affecting their lives and they were sort of becoming like her, living like her as this symbolic way of, of thinking and believing and living. That's why I think it talks about sexual immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols because it's a way of, of summarizing what Jezebel was all about and how she could infect and drag other people along into her lifestyle. But there's a clear connection here that we should not miss, and it's, it's the connection between teaching and leading. That's really what leading is all about. It is about teaching. It is about telling us what is true and knowing the difference between what is true and what is false, especially when it comes to what we believe about God. Now, the reason that that's so important, I think, is because the command center of our lives is not our hands. It's not our feet. It's not our eyes. It's not our mouths. It's actually something deeper within us, and it's our heart. Our heart is the operating system of our lives. It determines everything that we do. Everything that you do, everything that I do, comes from our hearts in one way or another. Therefore, our hearts are most important. We ought to guard our hearts. In fact, that's what the Bible says in Proverbs 4.23. It says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch out for your heart, because what your heart comes to believe will produce a certain way of living, a certain way of being. We want to watch our hearts. Watch our hearts because the world is full of teaching. Watch our hearts because the world seeks to instruct us. Watch our hearts because even our own flesh has something to say, which is often untrue. But watch our hearts. You may remember it wasn't very long ago we saw in the news actually something else about fuel a fuel problem. And that was the colonial pipeline. Do you remember that? When there was some ransomware from a group, like a cyber terrorism group in Russia called uh, the Dark Side, who is an ominous kind of name for your terror, terror group, the Dark Side. And, and what I think uh, ended up happening was they were able to insert a kind of, of software coding into the brain of the pipeline. And they did that, it sounds like, seems like so obvious. You know, I get this alert on my Mac all the time, like your password has been compromised in a data breach. You should change it. And I just say later. But even here for the pipeline, I think that's what happened. There was a compromise, something as simple as a compromised password. And in came this ransomware and it took over and it actually locked out access to the pipeline. And we all felt that, didn't we? As our gas went out and the price went up, it was a big deal. It's just another earthly picture of the importance of, of guarding our hearts because that's a similar thing that happens in our own lives. Our hearts get a kind of ransomware attack. 
We're constantly being influenced. We're constantly being, uh, being instructed from without and, more importantly, from within. I think this is the reason why God has sent us not a list of rules to follow. He didn't give us a new bunch of things to do. Do this, pray this, say this, and then all will be good. Because he knew that we couldn't keep up with the laws. We haven't kept up with his laws. In fact, that's what's gotten us into the trouble that we're in. And so instead, isn't it wise of God to not send us a list of rules, but to send us a person, to send us a preacher, to send us a prophet who is Christ, who announces to us good news, who gives us the kind of, the kind of operating system of our hearts that we need in order to make it in this world. Well, if we're going to live this way and we want to, we want to hold true in this deceptive world, despite our own flesh and, and the devil who, who wishes us, whoa, this is what we must do. We must not be content merely to keep up with the Christian Joneses. We must not be just content to keep up the front of good deeds that we would keep doing good things, of course, that we would keep serving, of course, that we keep persevering together, of course. But there is something more, isn't there? There's something that God is after, and it's the inward life of our hearts. It is to be careful that our belief is consistent with the truth because that's what leads us to the most happiness in Christ, and that's what leads to the most glory of Christ in our church and in our lives. So we need that truth. I need that truth. That's one that slips past me all the time. Good character can coexist with bad beliefs. So be on guard. Number two, tolerating bad beliefs is not just bad. It actually can be deadly. Listen to what the word of God says next. Verse 21 says, I gave her, whoever is meant there, symbolic a teaching or a person there that's being named Jezebel, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. That whole concept of Jezebel can seem confusing, but we do get some more information that helps us, helps us for our own personal lives, understand what the real problem is, what the trouble is, so we can watch out for it in our hearts. We learn some more details, and here's one. Did you see it in verse 21? What's the real issue? The real issue is her heart. She's unwilling, unwilling to repent. That's a crucial issue. That's a crucial issue in all of our lives that our, our wills have been kind of co-opted by sin, even in Christ. And so there is this battle going on for our wills. We want to keep our wills close to Christ. We want to keep ourselves submitting to him and listening to him because you can see how serious is Jesus' concern and how serious is his jealousy in this betrayal. It does not get any more serious than the graphic warning, graphic account that comes next in verses 22 and 23. Look at how serious God is about the intermingling of good character and bad beliefs and about unwillingness to repent. Verse 22, behold, Fix your eyes, wake up, look out with intensity. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness. 
And those who commit adultery with her, I think that means who are, who are living her kind of life and are, are uh, believing her false prophecies and beliefs, not those who are actually with her, he will throw them into great tribulation unless, unless they repent of her deeds. There's that, that important word of our faith, repent. It's not just that we stop doing deeds just as it wasn't just talking about deeds earlier. It's the whole life but rather that our hearts would be turned and that we would turn from sin and turn to the truth, that our hearts would be changed unless they repent of her deeds. It gets even more graphic and serious. It's hard to read it. I will kill her children with plague and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds. That's serious language. Boy, we're capturing what God thinks about these things. We ought not to take lightly God's seriousness about bad beliefs, about untruth, about bad theology. God, help us, fill us, fill us with truth because we don't want to be anything like this. But you notice also, there's something that goes hand in hand with that graphic description of judgment. And it is the gracious work of God on behalf of his people whom he knows and he cares for and he's saved and he keeps. And that is that he does all of this or talks about all of this because he wants the churches to know him. He wants his people to know him more. He's, he's doing this on behalf of his people to protect his people. There's a kind of preventative protection in these words. I think that's why they're, in, why they're intended for us, for what reason they are given to us that they would be preventative, a kind of warning to us. You've probably seen on TV, uh, you know, in recent years, as you see more commercials, there were some that, that, would, that would really try to, try to drive into you this, this warning about the dangers of, say, smoking or something like that. And you would see the commercials would try to put the most graphic picture in front of you of someone who, had, who, who was pleading with you as a, as a former, say, smoker who'd been through lots of surgeries because of cancer and was even, you know, talking on electrolarynx with that robotic kind of voice. And you've probably seen those commercials. Man, they just, like, stuck in my mind. What's the intention of that? The intention is that you would know. That commercial doesn't do any good for the person in the commercial, It only does good for those who hear it. It's preventative. It's a warning. It's a caution. That's what you have here. You have a graphic warning of what life is like apart from Christ. And therefore, we take it seriously. So here, what we find is one of the powerful, what we might call uses of God's law. You know, God's law tells us of his his warnings uh, about his character and his, his expectations, but it gives us serious threats and warnings so that we would not fall into sin. The the threats of the law, which is what you're hearing about here, they're sobering and they they drive us closer to Christ. They drive us toward gladness in Christ because of what he has done for us in his good news. And that's what is expected to happen here. That when you read these words, it would drive you to Christ. Catherine and I were just a few days ago out in the western United States driving through some mountains, and I could see on some of the mountains a trail that would go around all the way up to the top. And I've been on a few kind of trails like that before, 
And so I kind of thought back about what that was like as I saw this little bitty person in the distance walking around there, running around there. We immediately start to think about how dangerous that is. If you've ever been in a situation like that, a place like that, there is something harrowing about the edge of that cliff. There's no guardrail. It goes straight down. You almost, you almost don't want to look over because you feel too close to the edge. The times that I have been in places like that, do you know what that ledge, that edge, that threat of disaster did to me? It pushed me. Where did it push me? It pushed me up against the rock. I almost was hugging the rock, going around the trail in those times. And that is what is intended here. I think that as we hear these words and we see God's seriousness about sin and about these bad beliefs or this false teaching, he intends for us to press into him, that we would get close to him because he's the one who can help us. That's what he says, goes on in verse 23. Look at this. He wanted all the churches to know what? He says that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. You know, actually, if you look at this and you use some uh, concordance type lectionary kind of thing, you would see that the word minds is not actually the word minds. The actual word that we've translated minds to make sense of it is actually the word kidneys. He actually said that the churches would not know that I am he who searches the kidneys and the hearts. Because kidneys is a way of talking about the very essence of who you are. It's the deepest part of you, your bowels, your gut, your soul, your self, your heart. I search the kidneys and the hearts and I will give to each one according to his deeds. So cling to me as your rock. That's what he wants for us to do. That's what I hope we will do this morning as a result of this text. How do we do that? Well, the second use of this text this morning or application to our life is we're going to have to get better at something that we don't like doing. We're going to have to get better at something that our world really does not like doing, and that is listening to threats. In particular, the threats of the law. As you read through the word of God, I hope you're in a Bible reading plan maybe throughout the year. You come to lots of different passages where you read about the law of God. You read about the threats of his law. When you read those, you ought to stop and really ponder them. Really think about what they say about God, what they say about sin, and then allow them with the good news to drive you to Christ who has borne all of those threats, all of those punishments for us. That is the heart of our happiness in Christ. Well, finally, we see this last truth, and it is a much brighter one than the first two that we've seen. Just as the wages of sin is death, the reward of grace is this glorious life that he describes next. And this is the truth we want to capture that God rewards the heart which holds firm to the end. This is just as the threats push us to Christ. This hope of reward, of this glorious life holding firm to the end ought to pull us to Christ. We've got kind of a double pressure going on, and that's what we really need. So let's remember this truth this morning, that not only is tolerating bad beliefs deadly because they coexist with our character and 
quite sneaky, but rather also that God rewards the heart which holds firm to the end. And that's the last truth we see this morning. Look at verse 24. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known, or serious description, the deep things of Satan himself, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. You who know me, you who have not come to believe these things, you're not giving in to them, though, though you're, you're, you're under threat of their influence. I don't put any other burden on you. Only hold firm until I come again. You see, God is the one who places burdens on his people, and this is a beautiful picture of him not doing so. He doesn't place another burden on them. He doesn't place some other weight on them. But rather, he says, I have given you in Christ everything that you need for life and godliness. Hold firm to the end. Here we are reminded of another important spiritual warfare truth. And that is that the Bible never, God's way of spiritual warfare for us is never offensive. And we're never told to, to rebuke the devil or bind the devil or put up a hedge or do any of these other things. But rather, what are we told to do over and over again? Resist him and he will flee from you. Hold true to the truth. Hold true to the end. Stay close to Christ. This is the way that we hold firm to the end. Holding firm to the end is to overcome, which he says in verse 25. Hold firm and... Until I come, the one who overcomes and the one who keeps my deeds of my whole picture life until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. Rather, what he'll do is he, he will give us what he's promised, which is he will give all of those people who know him the joy of reigning with him, the joy of being with him in his ultimate care and control of the world forevermore. He's the one who will rule them with a rod of iron, as it says in Psalm 2, as the vessels of the potter are shattered. Just as he has received authority from his father, he will give to them the morning star. It's another reference to his, his control, to his kingship. He will bring them in and they will be part of his awesome kingdom reign. And he says again, the one who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you have an ear to hear, hear what he says to you. He is giving you instruction. He's giving you warning. He's giving you truth. He's giving you hope. He's giving you promises. He's given us everything here. What do we need? We need ears to hear it. We only have ears to hear it because of what Christ has done in us. And we only keep our ears clean and listening well by chasing after him. That's the ultimate purpose of the book of Revelation is to get us to exalt Christ and chase after him because he is the ultimate one who will persevere. He's the one who overcomes. You may look at your life like I do sometimes and think, how in the world am I ever going to overcome? You just laid on me all of this about this fallen world that's full of deception and trickery 
and that there's a devil who's accusing me and tempting me, and he's, he seems to be full of just hatred for me. Not only that, but you just told me that my flesh is messed up because I've got sin living inside of me, and I can't even trust my own heart. I've got to guard it all the time. How am I going to overcome? You're not. Christ is. That's our hope. That's why we stick close to him. That's why we chase after him. Over the last year, I've become a really nominal student, but a student nonetheless of, of kind of distance running. And I've been looking at, at different races and how they're run and different training, all that kind of stuff. And one of the things that's so interesting to me to learn is that in many of these big races, maybe not the biggest competitive ones, but most, they will have in the race what's called uh, a group or a team of pacers. And in the race, each pacer has a different time, which is written on a piece of paper at the top of a stick. And that racer, uh, that, that pacer is actually also a very good racer and is so good and has such great endurance and speed that he or she can run for the whole marathon the time written on that sheet. And so therefore, when you enter the race and you get there, what do you do? You decide, who should I stick with? Which is my guy or gal? Is it 8.30? Is it 9? Is it 8? How many minutes per mile can I do this? And once you find your person, you just stick to the pace. But what are you doing the whole time the race is going on? You're chasing the pacer. It's a beautiful picture of the Christian life. We have one pacer, and he is Christ. You cannot run out in front of him. It's impossible. He's the greatest endurance athlete of all time but you can stick close to him. And in some marvelous, miraculous way, he can run all the paces at the same time. Because some of you are like me, and you're like a 10-minute-per-mile like ten, ten person. And some of you are a lot faster than that. You're like nine, eight, seven. Some are even, even faster than that. You just catch on, and you just run, and it just seems so easy for you. The beauty is that our pacer, who is Christ, he runs all the times, all the time. All you have to do is look for him and chase him. We do that through the word of God. We do that as we take the Lord's Supper together. We are chasing him. We want to know him and be with him and follow him and run like him. And he promises that he will never, ever run ahead. He'll stay with us. We're grateful for that this morning because we need that kind of king in this kind of world, under this kind of devil, as this kind of person. And that's what we have. And so this morning, it is our joy to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. In just a moment, Pastor Kevin will come up after I pray, and we'll, uh, we'll invite everyone to come up in rows and, and take the elements of the Lord's Supper back to our seats, and we'll celebrate this together. And when we do, I hope that you have on your mind this great king who gave himself for us and is running for us and with us. And he is the one that we're chasing even in this moment as we take it together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace today and your mercy. We so desperately need every reminder that we can get of your faithfulness to us, that you are our king. You are better than a king. You are a shepherd. You are our savior. You are our sustainer. You are our life, our teacher, our prophet, our priest. You are our king. And so we pray this morning as we take the Lord's Supper together that you would give us grace to trust you, 
Give us grace to know you. Give us grace to hear you, have ears to hear, and to follow you uh, and to chase after you together as a church in more and better ways. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.